0: Hi everybody welcome to a very special big library read edition of the professional book nerds podcast presented by overdrive uh, this is adam one half of the professional book nerds podcast co-hosts i uh, just want to do a really quick introduction before we actually get into the episode uh, we recorded this a while back before we changed the dates of big library read so um, i said the old dates or prior, er, prior so if you're listening to this now uh, the big library read program is going to take place from august 3rd through August 17th. You can go to biglibraryread.com for more information. Um, in just a minute, here we're going to get to the introduction that we did with the author Tim Mason, where I'll talk about uh, the book and a lot about the Big Library program. But I uh, just wanted to give you a quick update before we actually get into the episode. Again, the, the dates of the actual program now are August 3rd through the 17th. And because we get a lot of people who listen to the Big Library Read version of this uh, episode, as kind of their introduction to us the professional book nerds podcast is a twice a week podcast we do author interviews on mondays and then we do book recommendation episodes on thursdays so if you go to professionalbooknerds.com you'll learn all about us and um, can get some more information about it but uh, in just a second here you'll hear our introduction music and then you will hear a much longer introduction about uh, Tim Mason and the program and everything like that but just wanted to give a quick note Again, one last time, the, the program dates for the Big, Libra- Big Library Read program are now August 3rd through August 17th, and if you go to biglibraryread.com, you'll get more information. Okay, I'm going to let you get to our episode. everybody it's Adam and Jill and we are super excited to welcome you to a very special big library read edition of the professional book nerds podcast if you're just joining in for the first time and have no idea what the big library read program is it is a global book club that takes place from June 22nd through July 13th and if your library is participating in the program which uh, just about all of the overdrive libraries do if you go to their overdrive website or go to Libby And open it up. The first thing you're going to see between June 22nd and July 13th is the book The Darwin Affair by Tim Mason. And so you'll be able to borrow that as both an ebook or an audiobook without any wait lists or holds. And then you can go to biglibraryread.com and join our discussion board. And you can interact with people all around the world that are reading the same book at the same time. Uh, You can also use the hashtag BigLibraryRead on social media for a chance to win a Samsung Galaxy. There's all sorts of uh, great stuff going on here, and you'll be able to, again, learn all about that if you go to biglibrary.com. And today, our episode is we're going to have a conversation with the author himself, Tim Mason, who, in addition to writing this fantastic book, is also a playwright who has whose work has been produced in New York and throughout the world. Uh, among the awards that he's received are a Kennedy Center Award, the Hollywood Drama Logo Award, a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, and a Rockefeller Foundation grant, which is fantastic. And in addition to his dramatic plays, he also wrote the book for Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the musical, which I just wanted to throw in there because I'm a massive Dr. Seuss fan, as long-time listeners will know. So, Tim, first off, thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you for talking to me. I'm just, I'm very pleased about all this. I didn't know about the big library read until it suddenly happened, and uh, couldn't be happier.
2: Yeah, there's going to be people all over the world reading your book at the same time. It's actually really pretty cool. Um, So to that, can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to The Darwin
1: Affair? Well, um, I'm a lifelong uh, fan of Charles Dickens, uh, reading and rereading his novels. Uh, In his greatest novel, uh, Bleak House, there's a magnetic character named Mr. Bucket, Inspector Bucket, a detective who um, is here and there throughout the novel, uh, un- un- unraveling the mystery of the novel. And uh, sometimes he's a upright, compassionate man, and sometimes less so, um, morally ambiguous here and there. Uh, he was very attractive to me always, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to write a novel in which he were the... the lead character instead of a supporting character. But as I thought about that, the other characters and the story that gathered in my mind involved actual historical uh, people. So I didn't want to use somebody else's fiction, Charles Dickens' fictional Mr. Bucket, interacting, say, with Charles Darwin or Thomas Huxley or Bishop Wilberforce. Uh, Eventually, I, I learned that Dickens himself modeled, most likely modeled Mr. Bucket, on a real life London policeman named Charles Field. So I took that name and then just uh, ran with it. And, and that was my, my permission to make a fiction involving all of these uh, historical people. So, oh, uh, go yeah. ahead. You well, the, going, the novel, uh, the, uh, astonishing fact uh, Charles Darwin published on the Origin of Species in November of 1859. In December of 1859, his name appeared on the Queen's Honors list of those to be knighted in the new year. He never received his knighthood. So what happened? That was the hook on which I was able to hang my fiction.
0: So you know, we you, you said, obviously, if people will discover very quickly that there are a lot of, as you mentioned, true historical characters in the story, but what you've written here is a historical fiction thriller. And I'm curious, your thoughts when you're approaching this story, you know, what unique opportunities that it presented to you to create a fictional story, but using historically you know, accurate characters and people that actually existed, like, how did that affect your storytelling?
1: Well, I, I, first of all, I felt uh, duty-bound to, to honor these people who's, who I'm using uh, without their permission um, and to be respectful of them for the most part. There's, there's one actual historical figure uh, that I used in the book who in real life was such a stinker that I, I, didn't, I didn't mind making him, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the wrong side. <laughs> um, uh, but others, you know, uh, I tried to be respectful of them. But in doing the research, I learned so much about them and, and the remarkable era uh, that in which they lived, which we think of as sort of prim, proper, buttoned-up, uptight um, Victorian England. I think it was only because so much of society was completely unraveling. The the Enlightenment was meeting. The industrial revolution and everything was up for grabs so no wonder they had to button up and and, you know because nothing felt stable everything was unstable and extraordinary people rose up at this time Uh, advances in science and and uh, the great flowering of of british fiction it's it's a wonderful period so looking at the life of prince albert who had never held my interest, there was, a, there was actually inside that prim Prussian exterior, a progressive trying, uh, bucking against society to get out. I thought it was fascinating. It had never occurred to me. Reading about Darwin's personal life, what a lovely man and father and husband. And he caused great pain in his own household with his own loving, devout wife, Emma. Who felt that his his findings might endanger his eternal soul. So it's just fabulous conflicts, right, within the actual historical figures. Um, so a, a, rich, a rich field uh, for me to mine.
2: Sort of on that, um, you know, because you're dealing with these historical figures who, in some cases, a lot has been written about their lives and their motivations, did you find it challenging to sort of write this like thrilling murder mystery kind of around those, um, those motivations and those real life actions?
1: Yes, it's challenging. And also <clears throat> uh, I, challenged, I, was challenged, I challenged myself to be as historically accurate as possible. So many of the events in my book actually happened and I've just sort of squeezed my fiction into the interstices. Um, uh, Prince Albert actually was on a visit to uh, Coburg, Coburg in Germany, his home, his hometown thrown from the carriage and nearly killed uh, uh, on October the 1st, 1860. I mean, it's, it, and I, I, I took that and made a fiction out of it, uh, you know, so I elaborated and I made, made stuff up concerning that accident, but he actually was thrown injured and came away from that accident profoundly melancholy for what little re- remained of his life. Um, uh, I got very lucky. You know, I always say that when you're writing something, whether a novel or a play, <clears throat> if you're into it, the universe will conspire to help you. And one of the years in which I was working on this, it took me a long time to write, three years, uh, was a, a jubilee for the Queen. And as to, one of the ways they marked it was to release to the public, just temporarily, uh, online diaries of Queen Victoria. So I got to read in her own account, day to day, hour to hour, her minutes on what happened during this, this narrow field of time some months later I wanted to go back and check that I'd been accurate and I found it is now closed <laughs> oh. I got so lucky uh, one may uh, one if one is a serious scholar one may apply in writing to the senior <laughs> archivist of, of the palace and you know <laughs> so I got lucky
0: yeah. um, you know when people read this book they're the inspirations, that like you said of, of dickens are going to be clear he's in the book actually i, w- I was doing some uh some charles dickens kind of like noodling around this morning and i realized so we're in a, we're doing this recording on uh june 9th and today is apparently the 150th anniversary of charles dickens death which i did not know mm-hmm. until i googled it this morning um <laughs> that, that is cool yeah. Yeah, just was, was. I was like, "Oh, this feels very apropos." That's not that has nothing to do with the question. I just noticed that. Um, Here's it. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the inspirations of of Dickens are going to be really clear, and then a lot of um, Arthur Conan Doyle as well. I I see a little bit of Agatha Christie, which we were, we were talking about before we started recording, uh, in the sense that you lay out this really full cast of characters pretty early on, and there there's a fair amount of them. But the the main difference I would say, from like a, a general standpoint between this and a, a Christie novel is. We have a, at least a good idea of in this book pretty early on again, like, who like the good characters are and who the bad characters are, and so as opposed to it being like a who done it, it's more of like a, a why and how done it. So I was was that something that you always wanted to approach? Because again, like the, the characters that aren't so great in this, they are really not great pretty quickly.
1: <laughs> no, I, I pretty much let the audience know uh, about, <laughs> about the uh, the psychotic killer at the heart of this. Pretty because- much. I feel that they get the the reader gets pleasure from going inside this this person's demented head, and actual you know um, it increases the anxiety level mm-hmm. uh, to spend uh, time with Decimus Cobb. Um, I didn't want it to be a, a whodunit. Uh, right now, I'm working on the next in the Inspector Field series. And the first half of the book will be, we don't know who, is, who, is, uh, who we should be watching out for. Mm-hmm. And then in, in the second half, the, the reader knows, but, but my principal characters don't. So, so I'm trying to have it both ways in the, in the new book. <laughs>
2: uh, speaking of Decimus Cobb, um, I imagine you had a lot of fun just sort of building out his complexities and his characters. Is he based on anyone um, in the real world or is he just entirely
1: fictional? He's entirely fictional. And uh, when I began writing him, I didn't know what was up with him. I did not know what drove him and what was his pathology. And I remember one morning in the shower, I went, oh, is that even physically human possible? (laughs) And I, when I, at the end of my shower, I, I googled it and looked at some images that I would love to erase from my mind. <laughs> yes, indeed, uh, this 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 is a physical possibility of this anomaly. So um, no, I didn't. But I, I I knew how he talked. I knew what um, what he was up to without knowing why for a while as I as I worked on the book, and then suddenly things came into place. Well,
0: and I feel like he. In- encapsulates a lot of why people are are fascinated by it like serial killers and and people of that ilk in the sense that like what he does is wrong there's no doubt about that like in his mind it's almost like he's doing it from a very scientific exploration of like how bodies work and what drives our existence and things like i think that's you know when people are looking into these types of things and like, there's a reason why everyone is so fascinated by what drives uh, and motivates serial killers. Like to him, it's almost like this isn't, I'm not committing murders. I'm, I'm exploring the science of everything.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, no villain thinks he or she is a villain. Um, I had a wonderful lesson in that, in, in a play I wrote called the fiery furnace. Um, one of the actors during rehearsals, uh, during dress rehearsals, came to the director, and he had changed his his look, his his makeup, and his costume, and you could tell looking at this person that he was he was revealed as being dissolute and not and not not such a good guy. And the director said, "Oh, Jerry, Jerry doesn't think he's a bad guy. Jerry thinks he's doing his best." Mm-hmm. It, Jerry is is a good guy in his mind. So the more you present yourself as the villain thinks of himself, which is not villainous at all, the truer you're going to be. And and the fact that you can't just dismiss uh, somebody who you dislike. You have to respect them as well because they obviously have a point of view, however deranged it might be.
0: I think that, that also goes to um sort of getting back to like that presenting everyone so early on in the book you do have an opportunity to um to really get inside of his mind whereas like i said again like with a lot of whodunits it, there's always a big reveal and then there tends to be very much like a pixar movie like a monologue at the end by the villain like and here's why i did the dastardly deed whereas you know you get a lot of information dump at the very end whereas this it is it's like every every chapter or scene that is in Decimus Cobb's like kind of point of view, it is you're just like, okay, well, this is horrible, but I guess he doesn't see it that way. And it is, it's a very interesting perspective.
1: At the beginning of, before I began to write, I knew that I needed, there was an element that I needed uh, for this story because I personally don't feel, hadn't felt any emotional connection with with some of the historical figures that appeared in it, yeah. but I knew that there would be a plot against one of them. And uh, in order to engage the audience and my own emotions, I needed a kid at risk. So I put Tom Ginty oh, yeah. in, the bo- in the box. And once I got him in the box, I couldn't, I couldn't stop trying to find out what happened to him. <laughs> and readers I hope can't stop trying to find out. Yeah.
0: He's tragic. <laughs> yeah, freeze
2: that. Well, and I mean, I'm I just like love listening to you talk about your process in terms of you didn't know. I mean, so you have these characters who are based on real people. You know who they are. You know, you know what their story is. And then you have these other characters that come along, and you're just sort of going along with them for the ride. It's just really fascinating. <laughs>
1: uh, I know that some wonderful writers are able to outline in advance and know what they're what they're what they're doing and for me writing this novel was very much like reading it very slowly (laughs) (laughs) right right now I'm at a similar point in uh, the new the new novel I simply don't know what happened next so I'm going back over the entire thing and filling in detail
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that I hope will reveal to me the clues about, oh, well, of course, this is what happened next. So you go back and rewrite and then try to make yourself look smart. Like you knew it all along. <laughs>
0: no, I, it's it's so funny you say that because if I, if when we had like four years ago, a million years ago, when we started this podcast at this point, if I would have thought about mystery and thriller writers, I would have assumed, oh, well, they have to have all this planned out. But we've interviewed so many of them. We've had like Harlan Coben and Lee Childs and all these these authors tell us, like, I will write myself into a corner. I'm excited to see what ha-. like, it was. I think it was Harley mm-hmm. he was joking. He was like, yeah, even I had my cell phone. I couldn't believe what happened in this one. I'm like, he's joking, but he's kind of not. Like, not. I'm a, I am fascinated.
1: <laughs> not <it."> joking. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's odd. Uh, uh, oh,
0: that's so funny. Um, it, 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 you know,
1: it involves a leap of faith. You have to believe that you're going to find your way out. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you simply have painted yourself into a corner and you have to find out where did I go wrong? If, if it's not going forward, probably I made a mistake along the line. And then you go backtrack to, oh, yeah. This, um, is, this is what pointed me in, in the wrong direction. Yeah.
2: It's like a mystery within a mystery. <laughs> yeah.
0: Put yourself in the middle of the labyrinth. Um, there's so if people go to biglibrary.com, they'll see that there's also uh, a discussion guide with a lot of really fun questions that I'm guessing the, the publisher provided um, i know a lot of times they do that but there's one that asked that uh, asks about inspector field and his relationship with inspector bucket and um i'm i'm curious to take on the idea of like there are times now and again that people will come up to him and be like oh you're the famous inspector bucket and like it does affect him but, like do you think celebrity would have hindered or helped him as an inspector in in that time
1: well, I know that the actual Charles Field, the London policeman, police mm-hmm. detective, um, thought it was great, Yeah, <laughs> his, his fame, and he sort of uh, talked it up to the to the irritation of, of Charles Dickens. <laughs> until it finally, uh, Dickens disavowed it completely, uh, claiming it was a total fiction, his mm-hmm. own creation, and had nothing to do with... Inspector Field, which I think is uh, baloney. Yeah, that's really, amazing. <laughs> because, uh, you know he, he, he uh, go and read uh, in household words Dickens uh, on on duty with Inspector Field. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It's a uh, he just spends an even a night an all night all night with um, Detective Field and a few of his men going into the most dangerous worst haunts of, of uh, the London Underground. And it's, it's chilling. And this man counters his uh, adversaries with uh, just steely wit. It's really good. My Inspector Field is not like that. He, I, he's a much, he's fallible. He's mm-hmm. self-doubting all the time. Am I getting it right? Am I getting it wrong? That felt to me much more human than something I could relate to.
0: Uh, and there's even a, there is a part somewhere. And this isn't giving anything away, but like someone basically says to him, that's like stop using your brain. You just, like go use like your brute force, like you like you're used to doing. He like, literally like someone basically tells him like stop thinking as as an inspector. They're just like no 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 <laughs> yeah. go beat someone up.
1: So, yeah, st- uh, thinking has never been your strong point. Uh, uh, really insulting. It's his boss who tells him that. Yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> But uh, one thing he is, is dogged. And I like somebody who keeps at it and who, um, you know, uh, values the the children that he's trying to rescue kids. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as, you know, we mentioned, or as Adam mentioned in the intro and you talked about it a little bit ago, um, you also, you don't just write novels, you write plays as well. And, you know, these are very different, Um, storytelling mediums is your process in terms of writing different between the two of those things
1: Um, in terms of it being a discovery from one day to the next no it's not different but no I I came to uh, prose fiction later in life Um, a story occurred to me uh, that simply couldn't be told on the stage and that Mm -hmm. became uh, this uh, middle school novel uh, the last Synapsid. And I had to teach myself how to write uh, prose fiction, and it's a completely different thing. It was like starting all over again. Um, I I don't know how old I was. Anyway, in my fifties, I guess. So um, that that took a long time. That <laughs> novel, and my first draft was four hundred and fifty pages long, <laughs> and you know, for kids, uh, but. but uh, what a thrill it was to learn a brand new art form uh, when, when, you know, spent so much time being as economical as you are on the stage In the stage action is one line to the next. What people say to each other constitutes action. And um, you, you know, if you're good at it, something is happening every minute and you don't get to describe what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. You don't get to uh, take the reader into into the interior. You show the exterior, which reveals the inter- interior. Mm-hmm. So it's completely different forms writing a novel, mm-hmm. and it was really it's really been fun. I'm sort of hooked on it now. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: I, I think also people who <clears throat> have have paid attention have you know read a lot of plays or have seen a lot of plays. I think when they read this, th- there's definitely something that I sort of picked up on. It's like you mentioned about seeing a play or a musical, like action happens from moment to moment, and if something is seen, it's expected to be used. You know the whole checkoff's gun thing. You know you put a, a gun in the, in the first, you know, first part of the play. It, it has to go off at some point, or else it's, there's no point to it. And I think that kind of plot-driven story idea is very prevalent in the Darwin Affair because you do have something very early on that happens that really drives. The, the plot, are you ever thinking when you're writing your novels that you wanna push towards a more plot driven idea that's similar to the stage? Or do you like to think about character development differently between the two mediums?
1: Uh, the, the characters takes, takes me along generally. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the character, getting to know the character and, and uh, um, imagining w- what they would say and what would, they would do it propels my, that's how I create the plot. Mm. really. So the character Mm -hmm. helps me along with, with plot. Um, uh, Given my work in in theater, I want the audience not to be let go of. So in the Darwin affair, I was striving with every chapter end to compel the reader. I got to know what happens next. Yeah. Um, so that if I, and if it works, that's 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 what I'm doing. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but
0: yeah, no, I'm I'm also like I guess unrelated to the book too. When you're writing, uh, you know, a, sta- a play for the stage, I don't want to say like you have people there and they can't leave because I mean I suppose in theory someone could get up and walk out, which is very very rare. But, but like sort of like you said, you want to create a hook at the end of each chapter um and you do obviously when you're writing a play you want it there needs to be things that keep people on whether it's on the edge of their seat or like keeps them engaged and interested but like is it is it like every certain amount of pages or every certain amount of like do you always try to end a certain scene with that same kind of a hook it's just that's I haven't thought about that till just now in the sense of like I could put a book down but nine ninety nine point nine times out of hundred I'm, I'm not going to get up and walk out of a I, I've left some musicals but yeah I don't know, I've waited until intermission then I'm just like okay this isn't for me
1: well believe me an, an, a theater audience can leave a play without leaving the building you, <laughs> you you're, you're the playwright standing at the back of the house you go oh they just they just shut down <laughs> yeah you know, I don't like that um uh, with uh, yeah no I did as I say really chapter endings I, I paid attention to and I wanted uh, mm-hmm. I wanted uh, something to compel I I talk about when I used to teach writing throw a leg over the fence into the next field you know so you know that there is a next field and you know that you know don't don't come to such a resolution that that okay it's safe for me to go make a sandwich yeah (laughs) I like that a lot
2: safe to omega sandwich. <laughs> so you you've written stage plays, you've written novels, you've written for both adults and, you know, younger audiences. Um do you find any of them particularly cha- like more challenging than the other?
1: I'm in in whatever I'm working on, I'm really trying to entertain myself. So, um my inner child is very present in my life, my my partner said once, "What's inner about it?" <laughs> yeah, um, so I'm I'm trying to entertain that that young person uh, when I'm you know writing writing for for that part of myself, and I'm you know I'm trying to entertain the adult in me who wants entertainment or escape. I must say this, I would probably not. Read this book myself. I'm I I'm, I'm very easily frightened, and I don't see scary movies. Um, I think I might make an exception in this case because I love historical fiction so much, and I love I love the characters. So I would be willing to 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 go here, but not late at night.
0: It's so funny you say that. I we've interviewed enough authors that kind of say the same thing. Like it's. Always interests me that the authors who write the like darkest characters when you meet them they 're like the most just fantastically joyful people I'm like uh, how did you create you got a little demon inside you? How did you create I,
1: I, I have nothing to do with me <laughs> <laughs> uh. I used to know because of a mutual friend I used to see on a, a social basis uh, the wonderful author, uh, Thomas Harris, mm-hmm. who created the you know, Hannibal Lecter and all of that—a a sweeter, Southern gentleman you could not hope to meet. Just the the soul of gentility, and and a funny, uh, sparkling wit. Yeah, it's it's a it's a strange. Kind of, how could he go to work every day? I thought back then. Mm-hmm. Well, here I had to go to work every day and 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 uh, and you know dish out real real. Uh, uh, uncomfortable m- moments for my characters. Really, really scary moments.
0: Reminds me when we we interviewed um, Charlene Harris, who wrote the
1: like the Sookie
0: Stackhouse Chronicles. Like it's says There was an HBO show True Blood. It's these like extremely dark vampire shows, and mm-hmm. she was just like the most lovely. So, it felt like having a southern grandmother.
1: Like yes. Really? Is- <laughs> oh, it is funny. What? Um. Uh, I wonder. I suppose you interview a, a, a comedic author, and and you find that they're very dark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I can't not ask about the Dr. Seuss thing again. I I am a huge Seuss fan. I literally have a Dr. Seuss tattoo on my arm of a, a quote of his book. What was it like writing, like that such well-known IP, like that existing world? Was there, you know, was the Seuss like were the Seuss people? like highly involved in, in the book you were writing. And obviously there's a very s- a specific through line for the story itself. Like, did it feel challenging or I'm just, I'm a, a giant Seuss nerd, so I'm curious about this.
1: Well, uh, I'm, uh, I got incredibly lucky years before I wrote the uh, adaptation of the Grinch. I was able to work with Dr. Seuss on the first stage adaptation he ever allowed the 500 Hats of Bartholomew Covens. Uh-huh. And the writer who had been initially hired to do this adaptation into a musical, um, wrote draft after draft that, um, that Theodor Geisel rejected. So they'd sold tickets. The thing was going to open and and Seuss was going to pull the plug on it and say that they brought me in and the composer in at like I think it in my memory is like only two months before we opened, we had nothing, and so wrote very fast, and every page got back in those days faxed <laughs> to Theodore Geisel for his approval. And early on, he said, "You are writing very good Seuss." So, and when the show opened, uh, well, that that book was really challenging because it's not in he hadn't developed the Seussian style right he wrote it it's prose fiction it doesn't rhyme no no goofy words yeah but i knew the audience expectation would be for that so i had to susify it (laughs) the musical so it's it's uh, lyrics so um he and his wife audrey geisel came and saw the opening and loved it and so we got to spend a weekend together and he befriended me i was about to move to new york from, from minneapolis and he said well wrote me such a beautiful illustrated letter saying you know the reviews were tremendous working with you the best thing about working with you is that you did all the work (laughs) you're living in a stone's throw of my first studio in New York City so it was it's just a great friendship he was very kind so years later when this opportunity to uh, adapt the Grinch came up it was his his wife Audrey who uh, pushed it um, behind the scenes. And she was just, you know, cleaning house here. Just found, she sent me so many beautiful letters, but uh, always encouraging me, you know, long after, (laughs) long after her husband had died. Uh, Now, now she, we lost her, I think last year.
0: I think, yeah, I believe that's right.
1: Lucky me. I mean,
0: I, you just broke my, Joe, do you have any other questions? I literally, like, I can't, I have nothing more than <laughs> no. I
1: can, that's amazing. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Adam, he, he was, he was elegant and dignified and very tall and gracious. And we were being feted all weekend from one society person's party to the next. And I was going through a hard time in my life at that time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, of course, put all of that into the into the musical. So everybody's crying by the end of the musical. And he would take me. He put his arm around me and get me out of the party. We would sit in stairwells uh, in these high rises and just he would, you know, no, look forward, don't look back. You know, basically saying, don't be sad. It's over. Be happy. It happened.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. This okay. is my favorite thing I've ever heard. All right, um, last question for you, That we'll ask, and then, then we'll let you go. What do you hope readers take away from reading The Darwin Affair?
1: Well, my own father was a devout Lutheran minister, a wonderful, gentle, loving man, a devout all lover of science as well. And on his list of great people was Charles Darwin. So he didn't find a conflict between his religious belief he, he and, and, um, you know, the big bang theory or the theory of evolution. He, he embraced them. He, he self-published wrote and self-published long books, trying to, trying to say, you don't have to be one or the other. You can be a person of science and a, a person of faith. And so, um, the impetus behind the whole plot uh, in back there in 1860 was to suppress the influence of Charles Darwin. And that is still happening today. So I, I didn't want this to be a purpose, purposeless entertainment. I wanted it to be an entertainment that, that allowed people to take a look at, at, um, scientific achievement and, and, uh, find a way into it instead of being shut out from it well
0: the book is amazing and quite literally tens of thousands of people are going to discover that over the next couple weeks when they they get a chance to sit down with it um tim thank you so much for joining us today this was so much fun
1: total fun for me jill adam thank you so much